Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. And today we have Carrie Wake, a speech pathologist from McCrory Pediatrics. Yes. So here is another therapist who has been so kind to give us her time and just valuable information. I learned so much on this episode because speech is a huge deal when it comes to Liam and and it affects so many facets of her life. And we talked about those facets. So eke out that time and grab yourself a piece of paper and a pencil because there's so much information here, as well as check those show notes for the abundance of resources that Carrie provided us to help support you and support your loved one. So Carrie Wake. Carrie, wonderful having you on the podcast. Thank you. Sure, sure. Glad to be here. So I am excited about speech because I'm going to learn a lot today. Because speech, from I never thought twice about speech, you know. I guess when Sophia was born, she had some speech uh, delays. But speech is so important. And it's really important when it comes to not only Liam being able to express himself, but also it really plays a role in how he's perceived. And when it comes to school, what people think that he knows or his ability is. So I am really excited to talk to you today so we can share a lot of very important information with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. All of those things you talked about, it's all very tied in. Do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? I've been practicing speech-language pathology for 12 years now. I've worked in the public school district setting um, at a district in Ventura County. And then most recently for the past eight years, I've been with McRoy Pediatrics. Um, I have the opportunity the past few years to supervise the speech therapy department as well, which has been great. I've gotten to continue to work with clients and families, which I really enjoy, as well as splitting my time with parent trainings, staff support, staff training, just kind of integrating all of it together. So that's all been fun. What led you to be a speech pathologist? I've always really, really enjoyed working with children. I remember starting babysitting and always had kids around me. I have two younger siblings, so always playing with them and helping out with them and then babysitting and working with kids in various capacities, coaching sports since I was 12 or 13. Then just later in high school, talking with my mom, who's a both my parents are educators. My mom's now a principal of a of an elementary school. But um, I was talking to her and saying, "Mom, I really want to work with kids, but I want to do something more specialized or more than teaching. Like, what do you think?" And so she was going through these other specialists she had encountered, and she was like, "What about speech therapy? You might like that." And I just kind of dove in, went for it in college, and really, really enjoyed it, and enjoyed learning about communication and just continuing to be able to work with kids and make it fun. Do you work with many kids with Down syndrome? At any given time since I've been practicing, I feel like I've always had one or two on my caseload. So 
I never had a lot all at once, but throughout my career, I've definitely always, always had children with Down syndrome that I've worked with. And are there certain speech development challenges or different issues with speech that you find consistent with children with Down syndrome? There's definitely some consistencies I've noticed and then a lot of variation as well. Um, as with all children are unique and different, but I think the consistencies I've noticed with the language, you have the delays or the just slower development in learning to say words, learning to combine words into sentences, learning how to use proper grammar. Like when you talk about something that happened, you put an ED on the end of your verb. I'm talking to you right now. Yesterday, I talked to you. So those verb endings and other word endings. Another common one I've seen is low tone is common in Down syndrome. So that's also going to affect the muscles uh, around the mouth, which that and some other structural differences in the mouth that'll cause children with Down syndrome not to pronounce their sounds as, as well all the time. You'll get one sound substituted for another sound, omissions of sounds, dropping them off their words, distortions of sounds, so it sounds a little bit off when they're trying to pronounce a sound. I have had a, a handful of kids with Down syndrome also who have some disfluencies or stuttering. That's a little bit more common, not in all kids with Down syndrome that I've worked with, but stuttering is a little bit more common as well. I've noticed that we've worked a lot on, in sentence forming, the words in between the nouns and verbs. And, and I think because at the beginning, he would he was just trying to communicate as well as he could. So he would use the main words of a sentence to put a sentence together. Like when he's signing. Right. So uh, that's been fun to, to teach him to pepper different words in and more descriptive words. And But it's something we're definitely are working with our speech therapist. Yeah, I think that's another common one, right? As you're, as you're working through some of those basic building blocks, then you still are fine-tuning and getting those, those little words, those articles, the A, the the, the helping verbs, all those other things to sound more complete in your sentences. Yeah. So can, can we visit, because Liam has been receiving speech, I don't know, since maybe he was a year old? Yeah, probably. Think? About a year old. And one speech pathologist explained speech to me as there are three pathways in the brain that have to do with speech. So could you speak a little bit about how speech is developed? I like to typically break speech down into four kind of common areas. Some people will say three, some people will say four, and I'll, I'll tell you why I like to expand one. The first is the receptive language, which is the understanding um, you know, the ability to of a very young child to start to know that when I say ball, it represents this round object. And if mom says, go get the ball, that I can understand that direction and know I need to walk over and pick up the ball and hand it to them. So that's kind of the first component that we see developing that understanding of words and what they mean and, and what I have to do when people say things to me. And then we move over to the second part of expressive language which is starting to try to say words yourself. There's a lot that goes into expressive language. And I like to distinguish one part there, which is pragmatics. 
um, which is also the social use of language, how we use language for different purposes, to ask for things, to tell you something, look, mom, um, to answer a question, to protest, no, stop, I don't like that. Um, so there's a lot of reasons we can use our words, and I think that's important to distinguish too, to make sure we're teaching all the different types of words and, and the functions of those. And then lastly, you have articulation or speech production, and that's going to be how clearly are we pronouncing those sounds. You know, some kids are trying to say words, but they're not always coming out clearly. You had mentioned sign language briefly. There are many of my kids with Down syndrome when they're younger that we will do something alternative for a little bit. Sign language, picture exchange communication system, something while the speech production is coming along because they're ready to communicate, they're ready to express, but their mouth isn't quite keeping up to get all those sounds pronounced clearly. So what can we help them with in the meantime to express themselves to get that language going while we keep working on the sound production and, and then it kind of moves over oftentimes to more verbal communication of, of using those words verbally. Yeah, with, with sign language, Liam uh, and Sophia, actually, we taught sign language to Sophia as well, our typical child, which was really an incredible experience. So it just seemed natural to to do that when Liam was born. And he still will use signs, especially when he's really wanting to say something, like to kind of like be an affirmation, you know, like I'm going to almost yell it if I say the word and sign the word at the same time. Emphasizing, yeah. But also with Liam, because, you know, he understands and he has the cognitive there. So I don't know what that would that be. What would that be fall under? So you can look at nonverbal intelligence or nonverbal cognition and then verbal cognition. Those, those are kind of the two main areas and, and language or, or communication skills overlap a lot with that. And um, as speech therapists, it's really helpful for us to see information about a child's cognition or nonverbal intelligence because that's what you're really looking at and comparing to. If the nonverbal intelligence or cognition is at a, a certain level, but, but the verbal or the language level is lower than that, we know we really need to work on that because we have the potential to get at least all the way up to equal with that nonverbal intelligence. So it's really, really important to know that. And when you have that gap, absolutely, you need you know, wow, there's a lot we can still push here to at least even that out and then keep going together, you know. That is, our, like I said before, that is our biggest battle in the IEP. Liam has a great cognitive ability from early on uh, because he went to a really great preschool that supported him. And it's showing that to people. It's hard because you, his ability to speak, no, now he's getting better. And at first he had the sign language, but if people, the, the, the biggest battle was Liam will, he actually would start making up signs to try to get you to understand him. Yeah. But then if the teacher or the assessor doesn't know sign language, they'll, they would, they've written him off so many times as like cannot learn and way below where he is cognitively. And I have to tell you, it's one of the most frustrating things. Just it's a, easy to it's do weird. as, as an assessor, though, because yeah, it's, it's a lazy move, but that's something to do. It's like, why? you know, you're, you've, you've seen maybe a child run around and then you come back a couple of days later and you go, OK, I'm going to get a one on one with them. And someone's got to work harder to dive in there and find out or ask questions and figure things out. And, and you don't always get that with an assessment. And it's frustrating. And also with the school getting supports, you don't always get the supports that you know that your child would 
definitely reach their potential if they had. And it's, it's really frustrating. It's one of the most frustrating things. Absolutely. And I think what I've observed in general, the school system in America is unfortunately the way that it's set up is for an auditory verbal learner. So there's a lot of different ways kids can learn and, and, and pick up information and share information. But in general, I've noticed the American school system is set up for auditory and verbal learners, which for all of my clients and, and many other kids too, who aren't my clients, who aren't in speech language therapy, it's not ideal. There, there's, because if you, if you have delays in language, auditory is not gonna be as strong necessarily and verbal is not gonna be as strong necessarily. And that's how the school system wants you to learn. And, and there are wonderful other ways, visually, tactilely, there's a lot of other great ways you can learn it and show intelligence and show skills, but yes, language delays kind of contradict with how the school system wants, wants kids to do it, in America at least. <laughs> when can a child start with speech therapy? There's not really an age that this would be the ideal time to start, but I will say most of the time the youngest I'm seeing is 15 months or up. Primarily under 12 months of age, language learning is more passive, if you will. It's more of that receptive language development. You're learning to respond to auditory things in your environment, learning to respond to sounds, things like that. There are definitely certain diagnoses, children with hearing loss, children who do have Down syndrome, other genetic disorders where you can identify them early and you know that there will be challenges in certain areas like communication that would maybe start a little bit younger, nine, 12 months. But prior to 12 months, you are looking at a lot of, like I said, just starting to respond to your environment unless there is some sort of more clear diagnosis, you're not necessarily seeing that a child is falling behind until closer to 15 to 18 months is a lot of times the youngest that I'm seeing. Do you have any advice or resources for new parents or parents up until that, that year mark or even after that could help them in the speech development? Yeah, absolutely. What's tricky is there's so much out on the internet, right? That's so hard to sort through and know what's helpful and, and what's um, accurate and, and what's not. In general, I recommend for anything online searching that you're doing .edu um, or .org rather than .com. More, more detailed milestone charts. You'll, you'll see milestone charts from your doctor or, or all of that on there, but it's just kind of monitoring milestones and then focusing on, on more opportunities for exposure. So for example, if you're looking at a six-month-old and you know that a milestone is supposed to be responding to voices, you make sure that you're um, talking to your child more and maybe being closer to them so that they can look at you and, and learn to respond instead of talking to them so far away. And so it's just, it's just more, I think, just being aware of those milestone lists and then, and then being able to watch for those things. So milestones is a big thing for parents uh, in our community because a lot of times it's a bittersweet thing because we see them come and then we see them go and we judge them on a certain timeline. 
So do you have any advice? Because if we're looking at milestones and this isn't coming, you know, you don't, you don't want to have that stress of why isn't it there? This is a big, big reason when we were talking before about how does, how does speech and language develop and how I was talking about, I like to distinguish four um, different areas of communication skills that we kind of look at. This is why pragmatics, I think, is so important and interesting for me in the years that I've been practicing, because you are looking at different reasons that you can use um, communication and the, and the social bits of communication. I think it's easy to get hung up on this is the way children learn with these steps and these skills in a certain order. Oh no, my child's stuck at this certain level. Will he ever get these milestones above that? Will he ever get there? Will he learn that? But I, I think to be reassured that I've definitely seen kids skip steps. I've seen kids go in different orders. That's for typical kids and kids with communication delays, I think. And so I, I think that functionality of communicating, which does fall into pragmatics in the social communication. And so many of my clients with Down syndrome are so strong at that social piece too, which is great. And so I think focusing that on that and taking advantage of that and how do we keep developing skills, even if it sometimes means skipping steps, of course, it's great to have a strong speech therapist you can consult with and, and figure out what works for your family and your child and what needs to be worked on. There is something we uh, look at in our field. It's a model of a triangle and it's the, it represents the team or everybody who's important to making decisions for any child on their program. It's called the evidence-based practice triangle, but you always need to look at equally research or what's been studied and shown to be effective. Like this is a good technique or strategy, your professional opinion as the specialists. And then the last one is the client and the family. And so those should always be equal. And I think if you are coming up against a specialist or a speech therapist who's maybe saying we can't do that or, or your child's not ready, maybe their triangle is a little unbalanced and they're not looking evenly at, at all the parts, which is important to do whenever you're working with anybody because everybody is an equal important part of the team for the child. Teamwork is something we've talked about with Aaron and Nikki and Kyle as well, as far as having a team together that's supporting your child and not being afraid to ask questions and to be empowered. So a, a parent has their child and they receive a diagnosis for Down syndrome. There are certain things we get it. We always get a list of things that will be challenges for our child. So what can they do with a newborn? Are there exercises? Are there any things that parents should know that would be tools that they can keep and use along the way? Yeah, it's a great question. And on that topic, this is actually one of the big areas that you're going to want to be a little bit careful about when you when you do some research. There is a whole field or, or group of thought that talks about these things called oral motor exercises. Um, and there are different ways that you kind of posture or move or open and close your mouth that they're claiming are supposed to help with speaking more clearly or pronouncing sounds more clearly or getting the muscles going of the mouth. But when we look at a lot of research that's been done there, there's actually been um, no research to say that that does in fact help with that. The best thing that helps to improve 
speech sound production and, and talking and clarity and, and using the mouth is talking. Because let's say that I want you to better pronounce an O sound where you have to kind of round your lips. If I have you just do like lip rounding or blowing or something like that, your mouth moves a little bit differently than it does if you're gonna say an O sound. So it's better just to kind of practice that O sound a lot, a lot, a lot. With low tone related to speech around the mouth too, you're not necessarily going to make the muscles stronger. You're just learning, the, the tone is, is set and what it is, you're just learning to use them more effectively. And, and you don't need a ton of strength to make a lot of speech sounds. It also has to do with coordination and how you can move your tongue and your lips in a certain order to combine them to make these words. So it's just, again, following a lot of those developmental milestones and practicing the skill of imitation when the child's really young. And, and actually, even like facial expression imitation is helpful. When mommy does a kiss face, you try to do a kissy face. When mommy smiles, you try to smile. And then moving on to just like copying sounds. A great one for really young kids. If your child makes a sound, try to copy it back. Um, reverse the role a little bit. So not always trying to have your child, can you say ba? Can you say oh? But if they're trying to make some sounds, even if they're not true sounds, copy them back. It helps with that that feedback loop and, and getting everything going. That's kind of the early just sound play and back and forth and the connectedness and the socialness that all helps early on. Is tone around the mouth different than the tone in the different parts of the body? It is a little bit different. Like for example, uh, when we're talking about the body, which is not my area of expertise, but I've gotten to work with a lot of occupational and physical therapists. And so my understanding, like for example, when a young child's learning to walk, strength is developing in their legs as well as coordination, right? So that they can learn to stand, they can learn to walk. Same thing if you're learning to throw a ball, you, you can get stronger and more coordinated in your in your arms and things to throw a ball. I think around the mouth, it's not as much like doing an exercise or doing strength training or something like that, where you can lift weights or something and build up your muscles and that helps with other parts of your body. There's not something you can do like strength training or lifting weights to like build up muscles in your mouth. You have the muscles that you have around your mouth. You can learn to move them in a more coordinated way. Um, and, and usually we just break things down by like sound combinations and different word combinations. So young kids do well to start with like words with just two sounds and then you build up to three sound words. And then we talk about syllables like candy that has two syllables and then computer. So you build up slowly to longer and longer words by breaking it down that way, your mouth can stay with and keep up with that coordination piece. I've always thought just how much technique does go into speech. I mean, that's the importance. There's a lot. I think that's what's so challenging about speech is because so much goes into it. And also it's so important. We want to hear our kids speak. For us personally, I want to hear Liam speak. And I also want him to have that tool so people stop judging his ability inaccurately, mostly in school. And, you know, we just had a situation where we were having a conversation with a new person and they don't know Liam and Liam was doing lots of silly things that he'll do when he meets people. And it was so hard because inside, I just, 
it was hard to see him be silly because I know that that person is developing a perception of him and they're thinking he's nonverbal. They're thinking he can't communicate. They're probably having some kind of judgment upon his cognitive ability. And it's so hard as a parent. It's such a, it's such a heavy weight. Um, and, and we can't necessarily change what other people are going to see. And we don't want to squash the silliness and, and personality out of our kids. This just the speech is so important. For as much as Liam loves when someone understands him, it's also if he kind of goes blah and someone laughs, he's like, bugga, 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 and he does more. <laughs> and then it's like more. Oh, you're being silly. Blah, 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 blah. And he'll just keep doing it. That's just a game, right? And then you're going to keep playing that game as long us, as you can. To us, it's like, oh. To us, like, oh, wouldn't you rather them understand what you're saying and you're saying something really clearly and... and but at the at the moment, that's not the game. And then honestly, like I don't want to step in and and be that be that parent to just step. But you tell me, is that what I'm I'm going to ask you right now? Am I because I've learned over the last three sessions that we've had that there's a lot of things that I need to do differently and a lot of new tools. I'll just say there's new tools that I have and new information to help support me, support Liam. So what do we do? Like, should you jump in and interpret for him? I guess is what you're asking, or. It's a matter of interpretation and then also correction. Obviously, there's some behavior stuff there, but at a certain point, I just want Liam to at sometimes just be able to be himself. And it's hard. It's hard because the whole journey with him has been getting him to reach his potential. And when we have those moments, I know it doesn't weigh on him because he's like, that was fun. Mm -hmm. But for us, automatically, I think, what's the right thing to do? So maybe you can tell me what's the right thing to do. I don't think I have a good, this is the answer. I think it's definitely going to be situational and what you think as his parent and what you think from knowing him and what's going to work for him. And I always like to think about narrowing it down a little bit and what is my goal right now? in this moment, because it can be so overwhelming that there's so many different things that you always feel like you want to work on. But at this one moment right now, what is my goal? Is my goal to, am I going to be working with this person for a long time? And I want to make sure they get a more accurate perception. Then maybe I'm going to jump in and, and give some more info. Or is right now my goal to let my child build up their personality and their confidence and all of that a little bit. So I'm just going to um, what that goal is, is my goal for him to learn about clarifying for himself. Like, do I want to just wait for somebody to not understand so well so that they can naturally ask and he can learn that skill of like, I have to clarify or I have to say something better or differently because somebody didn't understand me. What in this one moment is what I want to do. And, and I think it's a moment by moment thing. And what's most important right now, because we can't do it all at any one moment. I, I think the challenge is society doesn't ask Liam to clarify. Like if I went and somebody asked me a question, oh yeah, they're just like, oh, that's great, buddy. And, and they didn't they know what he said. And they don't know. And, and I've seen it with teachers. I've seen it just across the yeah. board in his entire life that they will accept that's who he is. I mean, I think this is the piece where we probably still need more education and, and training for other people, but it, it reminds me of 
one thing when you had asked me what else can you do when you're first working with your child or I think this is true for a child of any age very young as your child's developing always talk to your child at the age they are that doesn't mean I think go on and on and add in too many complex words but at the same time I'm always talking my kids through things um, there's a lot of parents I'll talk to and say and they'll say well he's having a really hard time with bath time and you know I don't know what else to do and things like that and I say are you are you explaining things to him are you letting him know even if you think they're not going to understand or even if you think they're not going to pay attention are you letting them know I'm going to wash your arm now giving it a couple seconds okay I'm going to wash your tummy now okay we have another minute and then we're going to get out even if your child's 12 months old 18 months old it, it almost feels like over explaining sometimes, but I think that can be really, really valuable. And like you said, receptive language, what a child's understanding is often going to be stronger than the level at which they can express themselves. So always really talking through everything and, and feeling like you're over explaining sometimes. It doesn't look like your child's focusing or understanding or, or listening sometimes, but I think even just sometimes the tone, the comfort, that, that's how we, we treat other people like human beings it's it's just respectful and and I think that's maybe where we are lacking some education out there in the world even unfortunately with other specialists that don't always see that piece of it and I think that's really really important you talk about saying something and then give it a beat and then doing it I've noticed this with Liam, and I don't want to be disrespectful because he's 10 and he's a full 10-year-old boy, but I do find that sometimes people don't understand. Like if I ask you a question and you answer, that's your answer. But when you ask Liam a question, if it's a change of a subject or if it's coming from someplace else, or even if it's just a new question, he'll often say, you'll say, do you like Avengers? And he'll go, no. And then Stephen and I will be like, what? It's like his favorite we thing. We know he does. You know he does. And then a few minutes later, he'll go, yes, Captain America. Like, I like Captain America. And is that a part of speech development? Yeah. So what you're looking at there is related to the receptive language. And we would usually call that auditory processing. So every person, whether you have language delays or not, has a certain amount of time they need to process information that's spoken to them. Oftentimes, depending on several factors, one of which is, like you said, a topic change. What are they doing right now? Are they involved in a task? Are they, are they playing with a toy? Are they doing something else? Or are they just sitting focusing on you? A lot of kids need a little bit more time to process that information. And sometimes if you just you almost have to retrain yourself to counting silently in your head to three, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and then you'll see that actual answer come out. And especially if you know the child really well, when you give it that few seconds, sometimes I'll even see children learning to correct themselves more quickly. Like if you ask your child a question like that, like, do you like Avengers? No. Yes. So they'll realize on their own if you just stay silent for a little bit. Oh yeah, I, I realize what I just said and I realize what you just said. 
And I have noticed that automatic no come out of children sometimes because I think sometimes they're afraid you're going to ask them to do something they don't want to do or because that happens a lot, I think, for kids, especially some of our, um, a lot of kids I've worked with with Down syndrome, they're like, oh gosh, somebody's going to ask me to do something that's hard for me um, that I'm not going to want to do. So I'm just going to give that automatic no without even giving themselves time to think about it and process it. And, and hopefully you can work with a speech pathologist that can give you more information if your child just needs a little bit of extra time or if you're, there, there are some kids who also have additional auditory processing disorders. Um, you really want to make sure and regularly get your child's hearing checked too because there, there are structural differences there in the ears and the narrowing of the eustachian tubes sometimes. So you can be more prone to ear infections, which um, when you have an ear infection, you actually get a little bit of a temporary mild hearing loss because there's fluid that fills up there in the ear and that can affect language development or, or processing information. They might hear you, but not as well, like, like as if you're listening underwater, kind of, not as well as maybe typically. Yeah, Liam had a couple uh, winters where we had problems and then he ended up getting tubes put in his ears for that. And we noticed, we noticed a big difference. I mean, it was horrible because he got in trouble a lot. He kept getting timeouts. And then I found out that he wasn't being non-compliant. He was, he actually couldn't hear me. And I felt horrible. It kind of goes back to when you, you were talking about, well, there's all these different kind of situations and what do we do? And it really is just specific to that moment. But parents in general have this pressure on them to do things right. And then we always feel like, Having a child with a disability, it's magnified. And I've said you this really have so many right. times. Because but, if not, there's such a consequence. Oh, and you feel this weight, right? And so th so you're looking for these answers, but you do realize that after talking to a professional that use a lot of your own judgment and, and, and relax. Trust yourself that you're doing some of it right. Take advice, but do know that, that you are the child's parent and feel comfortable with that and not judge yourself so much. It's hard. And it's hard for some people to relax because I feel like that's our only sense of power when some things, everything is so unpredictable or unknown. Uh, that That's our one thing that we can have control over is our response or doing, 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 doing. Well, taking a moment after asking a question and that's not for bad. Liam. Wow, that's great. I mean, in that situation where, we were t where he was talking to someone that he hadn't talked to before, as a parent, one thing I do with him is... I understand him probably better than other people. And so if he says something, I'll, I'll repeat what he said, like, oh, Avengers, huh? If he said Avengers, because the person might not have heard that. So I might get right on top of that. So whenever he answers his question, I'm right on top of it, repeating basically what he's saying if I don't think that that person understands him. Instead of giving him the moments, like you were saying, I mean, counting to three, to just hold there and let him really understand Oh, I, I am answering a question. I'm not just firing it off. Professional, please talk on that. Speak on that. <laughs> I think that one right there is going to be dependent on your child and dependent on your child's age too, I think. I think you had mentioned Liam's 10 now, correct? Yes. With being a, a little bit older like that, definitely I would kind of give him some time. He's at an age where maybe he can start learning to 
clarify or notice when people are understanding him or maybe he answered too fast because he wasn't listening so maybe he can correct it himself and I think just that space and that time and that patience could help a lot but I will say when you have a much younger child your your one-year-old your two-year-old your three even maybe up to five years old what you're talking about there we would call recasting can be really really valuable one it helps the child know that you know what they said and then two you can build on their language with that too so if i'm asking a young child what are you doing and they say car i say oh you're playing with your car oh that's so nice right so i can say back to them what they said and add a little bit more language it can really help with the younger years for both of those things um, to do that so that's going to be a little bit of a difference based on the age and the, and the language level of your child. But I think a child of any age, definitely giving that time. I, I wish I had the statistics right in front of me. I don't, but adults basically talk many more words per minute than a child, even if we're looking at typically developing kids. And the brain can process a little bit faster than it can speak. But at the same time, if you think about how much more quickly we talk, definitely putting in those pauses, emphasizing certain words, that's going to help a lot with the rate of the conversation feeling more manageable for a child. Because when people ask me a question as to having a conversation with him or, or getting him to do something, my advice, and please tell me if this is supportive or not, is I just said, uh, it works best if everybody's saying the same thing. It works best if we don't flourish it with these you know, flowery words and we keep the sentences simple. Is that good or bad? Or do we give him flowery words and have him try to figure out? As a parent, you don't want to see your kid drowning. You don't want to see them flailing about or trying to fit. Because you can see when I can look at Liam's face and, and watch when he's like, oh, this is too much. So do you have any advice on that? Yeah, there is a wonderful organization. And if you do have a chance, especially if you have a young child to take a course, it's called Hannon. Speech pathologists um, will teach these, I believe they're like 12 or 13 week courses you meet once a week. Um, it's to train parents to more naturally just work on communication in your everyday life. Because right, who has time? Who has two more hours in a day to sit down and do speech exercises. Like it's gonna be so much better if we can just incorporate it into bath time, into meal. We're already doing all these things. Why can't we just work whatever we need to do with talking and communication into that? And Hannon does a great job of outlining that and teaching that. And one part that I think is really um, great from that course it's a, it's a little rhyme. It helps you think about how you can speak to your child. Um, it goes, say less and stress, go slow and show. So there is value, I think, to simplifying it down a little bit, but keeping it grammatically correct. We do have some research on that. So if I'm going to tell my child about going to sit down at the table because it's time to eat dinner, I think it is a bit too overwhelming, especially if my if your child's young, to say, can you go sit down in your high chair because it's time to eat dinner? Woo, that was a lot of information in a long sentence. But I don't want to say, go sit in chair, because that's not grammatically appropriate. And, and we do want to foster that, that learning and receptive language for good grammar. So what I do want to say is I want to say a little bit less. I want to stress key words. I'm going to say it a little bit slower, and I'm also going to show. So I'm going to say, 
go sit down and I'm gonna to point to the chair. It's time to eat, maybe something like that. So I'm emphasizing some keywords there with some gestures at a little bit slower pace. And I love that because it's like the little rhyme say less and stress go slow and show. They even have a little nice visual on their website or a little poster you can, you can get about that. Um, my other thought would be if you are looking at needing to repeat yourself regarding that auditory processing is research does say don't rephrase. Um, that's going to be a whole new thing that the child has to process again. So if you said, do you want to play cars and your child's not responding, don't say, hey, should we play with your cars? Because now I just changed the phrasing and then it's, if they just missed a couple of words there in your phrase, now they have to reprocess a whole nother sentence. Even though you're generally saying the same thing, it's another sentence. So just repeat yourself again, again, emphasize those keywords, say it in the same way you already said it. And then maybe they can catch some of those words they missed the first time or, or get the meaning of it better. And, and that for the listeners is Hannon is H-A-N-E-N. H-A-N-E-N, yeah. It's out of um, Canada is where they originate from. I'm, I'm looking at the website right now and it looks fabulous. It's fantastic. The, the course that I think is most helpful for parents of young children, particularly with Down syndrome, is called It Takes Two to Talk. Because I, I feel like there's a, a point in Liam's life where he's just going to feel the, the way that I feel about other people see him where he's going to th look at me and say, you just don't think I'm able because if I'm always correcting him, if I'm always interceding, if I'm not allowing to him, him to have a conversation. And I feel like there's part of like inclusion is maybe it's okay for Liam to have a conversation or for that person not to understand and for that person to try to figure out how to treat Liam like a human. We're always trying to, I mean, this is us, but I think as, as parents, you're trying to bridge gaps sometimes. And I find myself doing that, you know, trying to, like I said, trying to, to reiterate what he's saying so that the person can understand it. But how educational for everybody, for him to just say words and for that person to have to respond. And, or even if it's like, I, what, what did you say? I think people are afraid to say, what did you say? I think those people want to bridge the gap too. And they're trying their best, but they don't want to offend anyone and right. they don't want to offend their parents. And, and so then there's this lull because you have this, this person who's trying to do their very best and figure it out that doesn't know what to do. And so they stop because they don't, what they don't want to do is the wrong thing mm -hmm. and they don't know what the right thing is. I don't always know what the right thing is. And I don't always know what the right thing is to be honest with you, but you know, I, I think overall at the base of it, everybody wants to be treated like a human being with respect. And I think my advice for, I think, anybody, not just parents talking to somebody with a communication delay, to a child with Down syndrome, to an adult with Down syndrome, is look globally at everything. We communicate with more than just our words. Nonverbal communication is a big thing, too. Our, our facial expressions, our body language, um, how we're standing, what we're doing. So, so look more globally and... Um, a strategy I actually often teach from Hannon is called interpreting. So you would look globally at a situation, what's going on right now, what non-verbally do you see, what even just sounds or other things do you see coming from the child? And let's put some words to that. Wow, you seem pretty excited, or it seems like you're not sure about what we're doing here. Let me tell you a little bit about it. And, and digging a little bit deeper. So I think sometimes we just look at the 
the surface oh, so that kid made a funny noise they they must not understand what i'm doing or they don't care or they don't have anything to say but let's dig deeper what situation are we in right now am i testing this kid why might they have done that are they trying to are they trying to establish an interaction with me are they just trying to have fun do they not understand are they wasting time so putting some more words with everything that you see can kind of help keep the interaction and the conversation going a little bit more. What advice can you give parents to give others when they're meeting your child? I mean, obviously, if a child is under one, there's not a lot of language there, typical or not, but along the way, regardless of age. I mean, I think it's going to be a lot of, again, dependent on your child and dependent on your level. And I think thinking about, is this a person that this is going to be a brief one-time interaction and we're probably not going to interact with them again? Or is this going to be somebody that we're regularly interacting with and, and maybe having a relationship with? And I think the explanation or, or what you do might be different in each case. And I think depending on where your child's at, are we at a point where they cognitively and non-verbally can understand that other people's perspective or or what other people think of me. And is that, whether they are gonna show it or not, is that valuable to them? So is that a teachable moment where we're gonna help and walk through that and add a little bit? It seems like my child's feeling um, a little bit nervous. Here's what helps him when he's nervous. Or my child can speak in words and sentences, but they often don't when they're first getting to know somebody. Like little things like that, depending on if your child's not ready to explain themselves or even practicing scenarios with them. Is that something that they're ready to learn to explain themselves? And, and sometimes I like to create little role plays and scenarios with some of my older kids. Is it, is it a good opportunity for them to, to learn to talk about themselves a little bit? My name's such and such. I have Down syndrome. I like talking about, like learning a little blurb about themselves to even practice and be able to tell people when they first meet them. Is that something that they're ready to practice to learn to advocate for themselves? Or um, that that's probably when you're looking at your, more in your teenage years and things like that. But um, And the explanation about the, because Liam's 10, so he is a little bit younger. So when the behavior happened, uh, you know, I did it in front of him. And then I was like, should I, do I, I, if someone's meeting Liam or talking to Liam, he's right there. So for me, it's like I'm trying to say stuff and do this thing to where they don't know I'm talking about them. Or can we just say, this is Liam. It seems like Liam's a little shy right now. So this is the situation. Or is that detrimental to his development if it gets said in front of him? Or if it's something, you know, that he doesn't like that one day he'll just be like, just talk to know that he just wants mom to stop stepping in. Do you feel like he would respond if you were to ask him, like, Liam, uh, so-and-so wants to ask you some questions today. Is it okay if I tell her a couple things about you before you start? That's fabulous. That's exactly what I should have done. That's what I would do going forward, and that's what I should have done. Well, we hate talking third person in front of our kids, too. So that's a direct question to him. And I think it's totally fine if you think your child is at a point where they can respond to that. I always would say, just just ask them, is it okay if I tell so-and-so a couple of things about you? And, and that goes back to what I was talking about with really feeling like you're over-explaining sometimes or like really talking 
talking through things. I think a lot of that, just, just putting it out there and out loud and involving your child when it seems appropriate kind of then gives you permission or gives them comfort and helps your child trust you that, you know, my mom or dad is here to help me and support me and they are going to involve me in it, but still having the chance to talk about or give information you need to give. I did want to talk a little bit about school, the importance of speech in school, how parents can advocate for their child for speech. I mean, I think it's helpful on that topic to maybe distinguish between um, your main ways to get speech therapy are school-based speech therapy and then like medically-based speech therapy through your um, insurance. Um, School-based speech therapy is going to look at how your child's communication skills are negatively impacting them academically, socially, or emotionally. So my understanding of the school district's requirements is they're going to test your child, number one, and first determine if they have delays in communication. With a diagnosis of Down syndrome, we know that that's part of it, the delays in language and communication skills. But secondly, the school district is also not automatically going to qualify them just because of delays. They're also going to look at how that's negatively impacting their ability to learn academic skills, socially have relationships with other kids, or emotionally regulate themselves to be able to learn in a classroom environment. So because that's their requirements, that's where I usually would recommend that you focus on. I mean, as a parent, you may not know everything that goes into academic learning, but you are following your kid through their school journey and you're seeing homework that comes home or assignments. So, so you know tasks or things that they're learning and you can just think about their, wow, because my child can't understand when I explain this, they're not going to be able to do this assignment as well. Or they understand, but they can't say this and this and this. So that's how, why they're going to have a hard time learning this assignment or showing this skill. So they need support for speech therapy. I think socially and emotionally might be a little bit easier for a parent, but again, you can see because my child can't speak in full sentences or, or, or can't explain what happened, like something happened out on the playground and they're crying and you ask them what happened and they can't explain it, that's going to affect them socially and emotionally. So that's an important skill that we need to work on or, or thinking about, yeah, my child has this one friend that they play with or, or they don't have friends and it's because they don't know how to have these conversational. So if any of that's impacted, that's, I think, how you make your case in an IEP or a school district situation. And because that is their requirements, that's what I think you focus on. So receptive language is a part of speech therapy? Because going into an IEP, that's actually one of the things that they use to try to negate placement in an inclusive classroom and also say that they're, they're not ready for speech therapy is that they can't understand. I mean, that's a big light bulb going off right now because that's actually something that they're supposed to support. So if they say, well, they can't understand the language, you can say, great. <laughs> that's wonderful that you've acknowledged that. And I'm just going to revisit putting all your IEPs and recording them because now you have them saying that your child can't understand, which is receptive language. And is that that is something that falls underneath the umbrella of what speech pathologists do. Yeah. So going back to those four main areas of what I talked about before, and that's often where you're going to get um, goals in your IEP, right? Receptive language, following directions, answering questions, understanding words when they're spoken to you. 
that's all going to go under receptive language. The second one, expressive language, how your child's talking, making sentences, answering questions, things like that, that's all going to play into what you need to do in a classroom. Three is going to be articulation. How clearly are they pronouncing their sounds and their words in order to, you know, there's some kids who are trying to talk, but if they're not clear or other people can't understand them, how are they going to show what they're learning? How are they going to make friends? How are they going to be emotionally stable? That goes back to your academic, social, and emotional. And then the last area that I like to separate out is the pragmatics because it ties so much into the social piece of language. Maybe your child can say sentences, but they're not, again, asking for when they need help. That's an important skill. Maybe they can say sentences, but if you ask them questions like, where did you go or what happened? And they don't know how to answer those questions, either because they don't understand them or they just don't know how to form the sentences to answer the questions that's going to affect you. So we want to hear our child talk. We want to know what's inside of them and what they want to come out. We see the frustration sometimes because they have, you know, some of some of the tools and they don't have the expressive substitutions, good or bad. Is and is there a time? So I know that at one point they offered us. I don't know what it's called, the assistive technology that actually would have talked for Liam. And then also, you know, sign language is something that we used and. I, f- I feel like sometimes we were told that it, it could also serve as an impediment at, cer- at a certain point. So could you speak on speech substitutions and whether they're good or bad or what the time frame or the use of them that would be supportive to speech development? Yeah, this is one of the biggest topics I think today. I would even say early in my career, and that's been 12 years till now, There's a, it's more common to offer speech generating devices, the technology's getting so great and things like that. And, and just to define that briefly, the speech generating device would be like, um, there's apps on iPads that it would have different pictures and words on there and you can push them and it would say the word or you can push several and build a sentence and it's basically speaking for you. There's also sign language, there's also a method called PEX, Picture Exchange Communication System. So it's interesting because we've done a lot of research on all these alternative methods. And while it seems counterintuitive, and I do have many parents tell me this, if we do this, they're not going to want to talk or it's going to hold them back from that. We've, we've done a lot of research and it, we've actually found the opposite. So they, there, there is a study where they compared children who weren't really speaking that much, weren't really verbal yet, and some of the kids were using something alternative, sign language, a device, pecs. They didn't really specify. They just had something alternative that, that was supporting them. And then the other children were just focusing on verbal, just trying to speak. So the children who had something alternative, actually more of them got closer to speaking and did speak than the kids who had nothing alternative. So the research is very supportive that... Um, And I always tell parents, just think of it like a bridge. We absolutely can keep working on, in the meantime, this sound imitation, um, these skills of combining sounds. We're going to do it simultaneously, so we're still going to work on it. But that frustration piece you talked about, because a lot of communication is nonverbal too. So imagine if, if your child's thinking in their head, 
I really want some crackers and cheese right now, but they can't say crackers and cheese. And then you have a picture or a button they can push that says crackers and cheese. How much more would that frustration go down in that moment? Because they can let you know, I'm hungry. I need some crackers and cheese just because you can push that. And it, it, it's not necessarily going to be forever. I often think about it as a bridge. If any speech therapist ever tells you your child will never talk or your child will talk by this age, it's impossible to make that prediction. So you can't focus on any of that. I know sometimes it's hard. You know, I want all my clients to talk. That is the ultimate goal. That's what I'm always pushing for. But sometimes getting to the talking means something alternative in the meantime, because that will get us there better, says the research, than having nothing for a lot of kids. So just on a side note, that when you're in an IEP, these are things that I think looking back would make great accommodations to bridge that gap, especially when you're in kindergarten and that speech is still developing first, second, third, even, and even fourth, I could see where some of it would, you know, help Liam though at this point, it might be a little bit of a game, but no, it could be a little bit of a bridge as well, just to help because our biggest challenge this whole time has, every time we go into an IEP, they say he can't, and then I have to say he can, and then I have to show that he can. So this would be something that now he they can show they can using this bridge. And as you're talking about it, I kind of think that if Liam had that, like he does with his iPad, he loves to watch movies on closed caption and read them. And he likes to, to do the language along with it. And I feel like maybe if he would have had one of those devices, it would also be a support to model appropriate language. Yep. Absolutely. And the thing you have to keep in mind with a device is it is kind of like learning a second language um, because uh, listening to spoken English and, and using spoken English is a little bit different than how a device is organized. So we keep words in our head. Well, a lot of people keep words in their head, like sort of in categories, or you have these sentence formations that your brain is, is used to saying so you can get them out kind of rapidly. I'm actually not 100% sure, but my theory would be that maybe a child with Down syndrome doesn't organize words in their head or able to retrieve them as easily as we are, maybe because of the organization or how it's stored. I don't know if we have a lot of research on that yet, but keep in mind that the way vocabulary is set up and stored on a device, one depends on what program you choose. There's many, many programs out there as far as what you can choose on a speech generating device. Anything from an iPad app up to a full little like mini computer that you can get from your child that has everything on there. And they're all organized a little bit differently. But learning that is a little bit like learning a second language too, but the, but the effectiveness that it's going to be bridging, definitely research shows us by far is very helpful than not having anything. Well, that kind of goes back to maybe getting the second opinion. We're, we're talking about getting information from an IEP team or from the district where you're... It's wrong. Well, they're giving information that could be wrong just because they didn't know it, but they could also be 
they may not have the resources or they think they don't have the resources to give one of these iPads to or or a little mini computer. And so you're asking the, like I've said so many times, you're asking the, the, the people that have car to dealership. supply you. Yeah, I always say car dealership. It's like asking the car dealer advice on how to get a good price on your car. That's not, that's not how it works. That's why if you can and you have the means, you go to the private sector, which we haven't done very often. And I and think we, we would have gone we will back. from this point on. We, we would. I mean, because if you can get your second opinion or first opinion from an honest third party, Someone that's not even affiliated with any of the costs. That's a hopefully a pure response to your question, and I think that's that's needed. So let me ask you this: So a parent has a child with Down syndrome, and and we have listeners that maybe don't have IEPs, but they're still supporting their child. But maybe the first resource for support is either minimal or non-existent, or not what you know that your child needs to support that development that they need at this moment in time. This Hannon Center looks fabulous as far as for support, but do you have any other places or any other things that you can ad- advise for those parents? Again, probably not right off the top, but I can get, definitely gather you stuff. And that also reminds me that I would in general be wary of people who do seem to have all the answers, especially all the answers really quickly, because I think it's not everybody can know everything. Not everyone's going to specialize well in everything. You can even probably hear from talking to me where I have a lot more experience and a lot more expertise. I've done a lot of work on bridging the gap using something alternative. I've done a lot of device work in the past five, 10 years and and putting kids on and then taking them off when they're ready to be verbal. But that would probably be just a general piece of advice that you're never going to find somebody who knows everything. You said ready to be verbal. When is that? When they can communicate as much and as clearly verbally for the general audience to understand most of the time as they can with their alternative communication methods. So I actually worked with a client for about three or four years with Down syndrome. When I started with him, he was making some sounds, but not really words. So we had started with um, the picture exchange communication system. I think he was three or four and he had learned very quickly to take a picture and hand it to me to ask for what he wanted. Then he started to learn to make sentences with the pictures so he could make full sentences like I want. And he would ask for specific songs he liked to listen to. I remember he loved listening to Katy Perry, (laughs) three or four year old. (laughs) Very cute. Um, But he would ask me for all these different things he would want to do. And then Shortly after he started building those sentences, he started reading parts of them. His, his words weren't 100% clear, but I could start it for him and say, I want, and then he would say the first part of the word music. And then we sort of just did this little overlap period where we sometimes still used the pictures when he needed a little support, but when he was clear and and when he tried to say it because the pictures were helping him try to say those words, if he said it clearly without the pictures, I would definitely honor that and we would go ahead and listen to our music or play with our toy or whatever he had asked for. So I think that's an important path that you're always looking for is maybe you're starting with primarily communicating with signs or, or with a device or with pictures or something. And then you come to this point where I've usually seen with kids, they'll start to try to start making a sound or part of the word or, or 
or the full word, but not the full sentence. And then you have this overlap period where you're kind of using both when they need to use the pictures for support. I think you were even mentioning sometimes Liam still signs. It's a nice support to have that you that you had that at the beginning. So, I mean, everybody does that, I think. Even us as adults, there's times where you have food in your mouth or something. So you're just like gesturing or using your expressions or something. You're, you're not always talking. There's a lot of ways we communicate. But I think it's nice for our kids with Down syndrome to have this base that they started on, whether with pictures or signs or a device. And none is better than the other, I think when you're deciding what's going to help for your child, it's just what, it's just what helps for them. I have a, another client I'm working with now who we went through a lot of different devices and programs. And after a while, his mom and I were saying, you know, I just don't think he likes these very much. He's not very into it. He's not bought into it. He'll kind of do it for us, but he's not too into it. So we came back to sign language, which he had done when he was really young. He's a bit older now. And wow, he's picking up on it amazingly. And he's, he's signing sentences when he can't say the words and then saying words when he can. And it just works for him. So you sometimes have a little bit of back and forth where you're seeing what works for your particular child at, at any particular age. That's great, just enabling them to communicate and to have the supports and maybe taking that pressure off about what will happen and what will be and just looking at the moment at hand. It's so hard to do, but yeah, it is great advice. It's great advice as much as you can moment by moment. It's an incredible journey. There's not going to be any one thing like, oh, I, I should have done this or and we would be here because it's all going to come to what it is and your children are going to be amazing and um, they have their own great personalities and their great talents. And so I think that's a big part of what I feel like speech therapy is too. Speech therapy is a little bit of trial and error. Like we're going to try, because if you look at any one goal or one skill that we're trying to teach a child, there's probably at least 10 different ways we can do it. And probably that's why you as the parents are such an important part of the team, because I could guess as the speech pathologist, and, and that's valid too, from the education that you have as a speech therapist, I could guess what's the best strategy or way to get to this goal, but I might be wrong. And you could guess as the parent and you might be wrong, but sometimes we try a couple things and they don't work. And that helps us more know what is going to work. And then we get closer and closer. And sometimes we guess right the first time and then your child gets the skill and then we go on to the next skill. So it's a lot about being patient with that process. And it is a process and going back and forth. We've talked about speech and the importance of it just for communication and also for perceptions in your years. What perception changes have you seen in Down syndrome? I think one of the big areas that there's been positive change is that there are more resources and supports out there for families. And so I think that's really helpful. I think we still need more. And I think sometimes now we have too much. So it's like, what do you go with this or that? But I think even this year, if we look at 2020 with so many things being virtual and online support groups and communities and like the great podcast that that you guys have I think as you can find the areas that are the right support people the right support groups I think that helps tremendously and then again on the other side we probably need more a better way to like narrow it down and then have it focused but 
that's a big area that I have seen in my practice. It's kind of hard to sometimes globally look at how is everybody else perceiving everything when you get really confident and focused on the way you like to do things. And especially because I get to train other people, I'm noticing this works, make sure you make sure you do this, or, you know, this is how we need to balance everything and work with people. But I think the information is hopefully going to be a big help. Well, in this time of distance learning, we have noticed that speech is one of the therapies that does translate pretty well over, over like a Zoom call or something like that. But kids are going on break for the holidays. And in my mind, I think of being at home and sometimes therapy stop during those times. And then there's regression. Summer too, you know. And so do you have any advice, uh, maybe a gift for parents? Things they can do at home with their child to keep supporting that speech development? So I have my top three. My favorite top three are books, songs, toys. I feel like you can do so, so much with that. That's for children with Down syndrome. That's for typical children. I mean, all kids, books, songs, toys. I feel like they're such good learning tools. And that way you can focus on what your child is interested in and engaged in. And then you just pick a focus there. And I think it helps to pick one main focus and, and try to make it as, as specific as you can. I mean, you probably know some of the things your child's been working on in therapy. Maybe they've been, you had mentioned at the beginning, little words. Maybe they're trying to learn to use prepositions like these are words like in, on, under. Maybe they're learning to include those in their sentences. So you're playing with some of their favorite toys with them and we're just focusing on those words. You have your cars in your racetrack. Oh, my car is going to go under the bridge and where's your car going to go? And and you just have that really narrow focus of whatever you're working on, but you're just doing it while you're playing or you're doing it while you're reading your book. My favorite thing to do with songs is take like a familiar song or a song the kid likes and add on to it or change the words. For for my younger kids, I really like the Happy and You Know It song because you could just keep adding on verses for whatever you need to work on. If you need to work on those little words in, on, and under, where are you going to clap your hands? Behind your back? In front of your back? On your head? Like we can just make it fun and, and into what they like, but just adding in that small little narrow focus. If you try to go too broad, I think that's when it gets overwhelming. Like, oh, I'm going to read this book and make sure he pronounces all his sounds correctly while he's reading his book. I think that's a little bit too overwhelming. Just focus it way down. We're going to read this book and I'm going to see if he can say the word turn the page, just that phrase. We're going to try to say that phrase really clearly. And each time we're going to read a a page and then we're going to say, turn the page. And I bet each time he says it, he probably says it a little more clearly because you're just narrowing it down and focusing while you're doing that activity. So, Well, we appreciate your evening. Yeah, thank you for your time and such great information. It's really great. I mean, this is information that I, I wish I had and, and I'm so thankful that I have now uh, because speech, like I said before, is, is impacts so many areas of Liam's life. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure and I have enjoyed uh, talking about everything. Yeah. We look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, same. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifwenewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. 
And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and